Welcome to Edgemont Bible Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, where our mission is to glorify God by guiding people into a discipleship relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to today's message by our pastor, Douglas A. White. Revelation 14, it says this, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing in their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Might seem to be a strange passage of Scripture to be put right here. As I've tried to tell, tell you, the book of Revelation is not a chronological book. It's not chronological. So if you read from one chapter to the next, expecting this is what each of the chronologies were, it's not. It's not the way time went. But each of them gives to us some notion, some understanding of what God is about, about what God sees as the end of all things. He's in Revelation. No? Oh, okay. He's in Revelation. Um, matter of fact, when people read this, I hear people saying, I don't read that book. It's scary. It scares me. I, it's so hard to understand. It's so deep. It's so dark. And I just want to say, what's the name of the book? What's a revelation about? It's the, the word actually in Greek means to uncover. So here's what he's done, kids. This is uncovering. What's going on? He's giving us revelation. He wants us to know what's going on. He's left this for us in order to build us up and encourage us. You you follow where I'm at? So when we look at it, if you had been one of these readers and you had been listening to chapter 13 about the power of a beast that comes up out of the sea and the power of a beast that comes up out of the earth and the horrors that comes from those guys, if you had been reading about the trumpets and the disasters that fall on things, and the way the, the earth has all kinds of things happening to it, bloodshed is everywhere, there's death everywhere, that could be a depressing and frightful thing. As a matter of fact, your first point in your outline here is there's much going on that's disastrous, it's wicked and horrifying. It could grab the attention and depress the hearers, frighten them beyond anything they have known. It could have could have scared them good. If you're reading along through here, you might have assumed we're never going to get out of this. This is horrible. So chapter 14 comes. And there he wants you to see something so that you don't forget. He's going all the way back to chapter 6 where a lamb was found. A lamb came and got the scroll, and the lamb brought the scroll and started opening the seals. He's going to take us back to that lamb. All right. So let's, let's take a look at it. Number one, we've had these trumpet judgments and the release of destruction on the earth. People, animals, land and sea, signs in the heavens. It, it was enough to depress you and frighten you. 
Then you had this chapter about the first beast and the second beast and a cursed people marked for destruction. Matter of fact, the end of chapter 13, look at it. It says here in verse 16 of 13, it says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So the last thing they had heard was about this mark that's going to be on people, about the, the way that they're going to be caused to do that. I mean, you're not going to be able to buy, sell, or anything. So they were seeing that it looks like everybody's going to be sucked in by this thing. It's all just going to draw us all into this uh, dangerous thing. So they're seeing that and wondering, who could win? How could we ever have any victory over this thing? So you have the first beast, the second beast, and a cursed people marked for destruction. Number three, martyrdom. And you were going to be murdered just for believing Jesus. If you didn't receive the mark, they were going to kill you. If you said you believe in Jesus Christ, for sure they're going to kill you. What kind of hope is there in this book? You know. So let's go on further. It seems endless. It seems there's no stop to it. It just seems endless. So as you're reading this along, so here's what I'm understanding. The theme of the book is not disaster. The theme of the book isn't even the judgment, though that judgment is certainly mentioned in there. There's a lot of it. The theme of the book is not just the wickedness that goes on. The theme of the book is not just that people don't repent. The theme of the book is the Lamb and the God of the Lamb, his Father. Wanted us to know this, God is sovereign and is bringing all to a close for the sake of redemption and renewal. Is there any hope? Well, when you read chapter 14 and verses 1 to 5, yep, there it is. There's the hope. So let's take a look at those just a little more closely. For the sake of grace and comfort, John is given the vision of the Lamb who started all this with taking the scroll and opening its seal. The Lamb is the center of attention, not all the disasters. All right. There's no one in heaven or earth that can come even close to him. Remember how it, was, how it looked when John was there in chapter 5? There had been this, everybody's talking about, here's this scroll that was in the right hand of the Father, and they're saying, Who's, who can open it? Who can open this thing? And they couldn't find anybody. And John wept because of that. Remember how John cried because there wasn't anybody found that could open that book, that could open that scroll up? There wasn't anybody there that could do that. Well, John has now, he was told there is someone found. It was the lamb. And that's the lamb that's in question here. That's the lamb that's the focus and the center here. So even though there was no one in heaven or earth that could come even close to him, he's the only one in the whole cosmos worthy to open the scrolls and preside over all the proceedings. So he's the one who's going to open it up. He's the one who's going to start this whole thing. But as the seals are opening, man, all the, the stuff that comes out of it looks so dangerous, so deadly. How will anybody live through that? What we see here, look if you would, at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, now stop just a minute. I want you to get the picture here. He's standing on Mount Zion. 
There are several ways you could say standing in the Greek text. The word that he chose to use here to say standing means he was firmly standing. He had taken a position. He was ruling, if you would, from that position. This is not uh, uh, standing like you, you know, sometimes when you uh, climb mountains and things like that. You're standing all right, but you're kind of uh, holding on with it. You, you, boy, I hope I don't trip or fall or whatever. That's not the way this was. He's in full command of the territory. He is standing there. What does that do if you've been reading all about two beasts and all the marked people and all the death and things that are going to follow from that? You're looking at Mount Zion and finding him standing there. And with him, he's not alone. We're going to look at that in just a few moments. But with him, 144,000. Why Mount Zion? I want to just share with you, just mountains are important in the Word of God. Mountains are important. So I have just a few verses I'd like to share with you. Mount Zion is the city of David. Now, you say, that's, that's Jerusalem. Not exactly. Jerusalem covers a lot of territory. This literally is the city that David lived in. This was the part that God showed him. This was the part that David took from the Jebusites. This was what God called Zion. It means the highest point. And so here is Zion. So he's there. In Psalm 2, when all the nations are riled up and they're, they're saying, we're going to toss off God's authority, we're going to throw away God's order of things, we're going to live our own lives, we're going to do things, it says that God laughs at them and holds them in derision and says this, yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Notice what he says, my king on my holy hill. Holy means to be set apart. This is different. How many hills do you suppose there are in the world? I didn't take a, a, a count of anything like that. Just how many hills do you suppose there are? This one's the one God has chosen. Guys, I don't know. That, that to me, I know Jeff's going to do a lesson for us on one of the Wednesday nights here called Cosmic Geography. God made the earth, and he made it to respond to him. And he made it so that there'd be places. I mean, he's the one who made himself a garden. And that was a high place, a mountainous place. He made himself a garden. And that garden is where all the people lived. That's where, uh, that's where the, the, the angels were meeting. That's where, that was his temple. That was a special place to him. Here, this Mount Zion is that special place. It's not the tallest mountain. I remember we were in, uh, where was it? Uh, oh, um, Darjeeling. We were in Darjeeling, and we had gone up to um, the. They had a nice little restaurant that was had a, a roof where you could uh, eat and drink tea and all that good stuff. Darjeeling tea, by the way. And and you were sitting right there. The people kept saying. It's going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed. And everybody starts looking up, looking up. And I didn't under, we're at, uh, goodness, I don't know, maybe 10,000 feet, more, more than that at Darjeeling. Okay. So we're at that. So they say, it's going to be revealed. Keep looking, keep looking. So we're looking and I'm, I'm looking at something that's going to be revealed. And it's, you know, as, as it gets closer and closer, I can see clouds parting and stuff like that. So I look down here. I'm trying to look about eye level because there's great mountains going to show up. And I'm looking right there. 
And then pretty soon said, there it is, there it is. And where I'm looking, there isn't anything. Just look like clouds. Because I wasn't looking in the right place. Up there was where it was. I mean, thousands of feet above where I was was this great mountain. Why didn't God choose one of those? I mean, there are gorgeous mountains all over the world. Why didn't he choose one of those? Instead, he chose Zion and said, Zion is going to be the center of the earth. Zion is going to be where everybody comes. Zion is where I'm going to live. As a matter of fact, he said it that way. He said, uh, uh, oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. And said, may he send help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. Psalm 48.1, we used to sing this song all the time. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. The psalmist again says, Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. That's where God lives. Wow. In Salem also is his tabernacle, and his dwelling place is in Zion. Uh, he goes on further. Let me, let me read a couple of here because I want you to see how important this is. Zion is so important that it says the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. In other words, he is outshining the sun. He's outshining the moon. They are disgraced by the fact that their light is not as bright as his light is, and it's coming out of Zion. So when you see Jesus, or I'm, I'm sorry, when you see the Lamb standing in Mount Zion, know that means that the Lamb is standing in the dwelling place of God. Who dwells in the dwelling place of God? God. And the Lamb is God. Isn't that exciting? That's where the Lamb is. He's on Mount Zion. Now, let me go further with you. A couple of them here that are really, I think, critical in the New Testament. He said this, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. He said to us in Hebrews chapter 12, that's where we've come. We are in Mount Zion. We are dwelling with him. He's not going to be alone at Mount Zion. He is standing there, and that is revealing his spiritual authority over everything else. Now, let's talk about timing just for a moment. If what we've been seeing here in, in chapter 13 has been the actions of the, the beast, the beast, okay, I'm going to make this the t- timeline of the tribulation again. This is where the tribulation begins. This is the middle of the tribulation, and over here is the end of the tribulation. What we had seen back over here with the beginning of 13 was a beast coming up out of the sea right here, and he's beginning his conquest of everything in the world. And he's making his way to Jerusalem. As he's going along, a beast comes up out of the earth during this same period of time and starts proclaiming the praises of that first beast. And so the two of them are working together. People are dying. These conquering things, things are going. And he makes his way to Jerusalem. 
And as he's got to Jerusalem, he stands there and make himself to be God. He's been assassinated, and he's been risen from the dead. He's now made himself to be God. Well, if he's done all of that in Jerusalem, is this what's going on? While Are these 144,000 a lamb, are they showing themselves at this time right here? No, I'm going to have you step out of time just for a minute, will you? There's time. Let's step out into eternity. We're out now in eternity. I ask you a question. When things happen in eternity past, when are they happening? Right now. When are they happening? Then. When things are done by God's work, they happen always in the eternal present. It's always present tense. You can't have an eternity past. Because to say eternity past is to say there was time. There is no time in eternity. So there isn't an eternity past any more than there's an eternity future. It's all happening right now. So God, standing outside of time, takes John aside and says, depressing, isn't it? He's taking us back into time saying, look how depressing it is. Frightening, isn't it, to see that beast, to see all those things happening? Will they ever be defeated? Step back out of time again. John, I already have the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion. It's a done deal, John. Don't be depressed. Don't be frightened. Here's the end. This is what I want you to see is the end of all things. That this guy is not going to win. No, in fact, not all the people are going to follow this. No, they're not. There are those who will be following the Lamb. I've already marked out. Back here, 144,000 Jewish believers. I marked them out. Remember that back in chapter 7? He'd already marked them out. These are his. And they're standing up here with him in Mount Zion, and he's showing him outside of time, don't panic about what's going on in time. For here's the way it all comes out. That's what I have. The Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion, my dwelling place. All right. Let's go on then to the second page. All right. This Lamb, let's identify him, shall we? He is the Son of the Father. Look what it says here in verse 2, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. He is the Son of the Father. You're going to say, well, we, we know all that. That's, that's, just, that's just a given. He's the Son of the Father, the firstborn of the dead. He's overcome everything. He's raised again from the dead. He is the perfect and final sacrifice. He is the firstborn son of God, and that makes him the inheritor of the cosmos. Everything that has been created was created through Jesus, through this one right here. Everything, great, small, visible, invisible, under the earth, in the earth, above the earth, in the seas, in the skies, all of it made by him, and he's the inheritor of it. 
if we listen to the news today, and, and I, I try to stay informed with the things I think are important to stay informed with, um, I'm trying to watch the farmer's market because that's really kind of an important thing. You see, you've got to have food. And just a few things you've got to have. Food is one of them, right? I've been watching for years now, watching major corporations buying up water rights all over the world, buying up the water rights. You've got to have water. And those major corporations own much of the water rights of the world. As a result of that, it's theirs to take when they want it. And they have been draining some of the lakes for a long time now, bottling it up and selling it back to us, double profiting on everything. But that means that they would be in control of the water, whether they want to release it or they don't. Second, I've been watching food, and I hope you have been too, because food is rather important. The can of beans that you opened and ate last week, that can of um, green beans that you opened, what year was that? What year was that produced? Was that this year's green beans? No, that could have been 2020's green beans. They gave you a time that it's best by, so it's got quite a bit of time on it. If we're having the drought we're having now, will 2021 have green beans in a can? Will it have enough green beans in a can? Right now we know that Russia has the, the, the uh, Ukraine's seaports blockaded. You can't get anything out. Their major way of getting wheat out, and they're the third largest producer of wheat in the world, their major way of getting it out is through the sea. You see, you could put thousands of bushels of wheat inside the, the tanker. You can't put near that much on trains. You sure can't put that much on trucks. So it would take a long, long time to get as much food by train and truck to its destinations as it would be by the boat. And then you have a war going on at the same time and people not able, I think it was uh, less than 30% of their land got to be back in uh, farming this year. That means that there will be a serious uh, wheat shortage. When there's a serious wheat shortage in one place, that means that people will want to buy it from another. But it's hard to buy it if there's a drought that's keeping you from it. Everybody see where I'm at? So when you hear that news, you could get depressed and frightened. And kids, it could be that we won't have any food this time next year. It could easily be that. It could be that this time next year, we won't have any money to buy it with anyway. If the whole culture goes belly up on its, on its um, money situation, you can't have a government that just keeps putting out money after money after money after money. All they're doing is inflating your money. We could easily be frightened. We could easily be bothered by all that. I'm going to encourage you to think over how to get prepared for it. There's nothing wrong being prepared. Joseph knew to be prepared. There was something that had to be done to be prepared, so get prepared. But know this. Before you think that they win, I want to ask you to go back with me and remember who's standing on Mount Zion and who are the people who are with him. That's his people, people he marked. 
you are one of those people he marked, not, not as 144,000, but you are some of the people that he marked out the day that you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he took possession of you. Marked. You're with him. You will win this thing. All right. Let me go on further with you. He's the inheritor of the whole cosmos. He's the king over all but God himself. He is not the king over God, but he's the king over everything else. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was dead and is now alive. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one through whom all things were created, great and small, the one who holds the keys of Hades and death, the light, the life, the truth, and the resurrection. That's who your faith is in. Don't put your faith in any political person. Don't put your faith in any economic system. Don't put your your faith in the isms of the world. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and read him, pray to him, serve him, love him, but make sure that it's Jesus. That's the center of your attention, just as Jesus is the center of the attention of the book of Revelation. Number six in our outline, all these things are happening in his behalf, in the behalf of the Son of God, by the Father for his sake and kingdom. Jesus was told to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, and that's what you're reading about right here. This is how God is bringing all of Jesus' enemies to his footstool. But he's not alone. Look, God is solitary, and he's in need of nothing. Now, that's, that's a, a, a logic statement more than it is a, a for real statement. It's just logical. God doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient. He is Yahweh, and Yahweh does not need anything. So why are we here? He's in need of nothing, but he has chosen to have those around him whom he can love and have fellowship and who will, on their own, love him. It's his pleasure and delight. That's what God delighted in doing. Back when he's creating this whole thing, kids, back when he's doing it, he was not in need of something that he did it. He was not in the universe all lonely and sad. He was not in the universe not having any toys to play with. He was not in the universe saying, what can I do? He chose to make this world He chose to put people on it, and he chose to love you. He chose that you would be his pleasure and delight. He chose to do that. Everybody what I'm saying? This is something that he is wanting to do, something he's pleased to do, and something he's looking forward to having you with him forever. God marked you out. God loved you. He chose and marked out the 144,000 Jewish believers to be close to him forever. That's the same group that he marked out early in chapter 7. That's the people who are there. All he's doing is bringing us an update on those 144,000. So they're chosen back here. What happened to them? Did they die? Did they make it? What happened to them? He's wanting us to see they're standing with the Lamb, the forgiving redeeming lamb is standing there, and they're singing with him. I mean, this isn't go, everybody standing there wringing their hands wondering what's going to happen next. They're singing. And whatever song it is, they're the only ones that can know it. I don't know if that's linguistic, that that's, the only, that's only in their language. 
I, I don't know what that means exactly, but I know this. Nobody else can learn that. Is it because it has such an unusual melodic scale? Is it because it has unusual um, uh, harmonies to it? We're not told that. We're just told this. They're the only ones who can sing it, and they're close to him. Listen to the description of them he's given there. They are marked with the Father's mark. Look, if you would, verse 2, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. They have a song to sing that only they can know and sing, and no one else can even learn it. It says uh, about them, now, now no, first, it says, and I heard a voice from heaven. That's a single voice, just one voice, like the voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. That's usually the word that's used for someone very close to the throne, either God himself or one of the archangels who are close to the throne. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Now we've picked up a few more uh, beings of some kind. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. Now, it doesn't say that the 144,000 were singing there. It just simply says that they sang, as it were, a new song. But then it goes on to say, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed on the earth. So we make the assumption that it's the 144,000 that are singing this song. They are redeemed people from the earth. They are people that were brought from the earth. They are first fruits to God and to the Lamb. He has chosen them to be the first fruits that he's bringing. You say, wait a minute. The first fruits should have been back here at Pentecost. When Pentecost happened, that should be the first fruits. No, he has chosen this group to be the first fruits of that whole thing. This is He's saying, this is what I'm showing everybody. This is what salvation and redemption is like. These were the 144,000 evangelists that were teaching the word of God to all the people in the whole wide world through whom people came to know Christ. They are all male. They're virgins, not defiled by women. Now, uh, when, when we speak about defiled by women, if you're married uh, and you're, you, you, you've not been defiled by women, you understand what I'm saying here? Paul said that he was single, and he thought it best not to touch a woman. He was defiled. Why? He was dedicated to one cause and one only. And we were told in First Corinthians chapter 7 that to the married people, you have to be devoted to your spouse and to Christ. But he said, because you have that dual role at times, you can't be as dedicated as those who are like me. So he said, I wish everybody was like me could just be dedicated to Christ alone. These 144,000 are dedicated to Christ and Christ alone. They are celibate. He says here about them in verse 5, in their mouth was found no deceit, no guile. They didn't speak anything that was not absolutely true. And it says, for they are without fault before the throne of God. That is a powerful statement to make. These are people who have been marked out by God. They are redeemed by God. They have a life that was given to them by God. That's why they don't speak guile. That's why they don't. Uh, they are without fault before the throne because Jesus has marked them out. It's not because they did these things and Jesus said, you guys are so good, I'm going to let you be a part of my team. No, they became a part of his team and they became these good people. This is a powerful thing our God has done by giving us Revelation chapter 14 because he's wanting us to know this, that in spite of whatever you get to hear in the world today, 
And believe me, there's plenty of things that are in the world today that could be very depressing, that could be very frightening. We are called on to remember there is a 14. There is a 14. Go back to the 14. Don't just listen to all the stuff that you're hearing on the news or even the things which are true. That I just Sometimes the news isn't true, and we know it, but there are things that are happening that are true. And those things can be very depressing. Just keep remembering, there is a 14. There is a hope. Don't give up, brothers and sisters. Sorry. Father, thank you so much for the gift of the life of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this revelation you've given to us. How important it is, Father, that we believe this revelation of God. Help us to have faith, to trust you that regardless of what anything else may be like, faith keeps us alive. Thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of faith. Thank you for what you're going to do in each one of us just now as we get to be the people of God right here on this planet, right in a great time to be speaking the Word of God. In Jesus' name. Out of Zion's hill, salvation comes. Boy, isn't that great? And you look at that and you're recognizing, I saw the Lamb standing on the mount, firmly standing, and the 144,000 singing the song of victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kids, you couldn't be alive at a better time than this. This is the day to make Jesus Christ known to everybody. You're full of hope. you got a lot of things. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and thank you for the truth of the gospel. We ask just now you would open our hearts, open our mouths, and open the people around us that they might receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Save souls, Father, for we know your judgment is coming. Thank you that we're still living in that gracious time where people can come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior right now. So save souls, Father, and thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace, go in grace, and go in love. We hope God has encouraged you with today's message by Pastor White. Thank you for joining us at the Edgemont Bible Church. We'd love to have you visit us if you're ever in the area. For directions, more information, or to support the ministry of Edgemont Bible Church, please go to our website at edgemontbiblechurch.org. That's edgemontbiblechurch, all one word, Org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Edgemont Bible Church, where the Sunday morning message is broadcast live.